Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you so much for joining us on BC Podcast. Here's a message to encourage your heart this week. Good morning, Bible Center Church. It's great to be back with you again for Jeannie and me both. I bring you greetings this morning from Jim and Jennifer Simmons. Some of you old-timers may remember the Simmons. They were here as members for a few years until they moved to Princeton because of work reasons. Back in 1982, they became a part very faithful part of Johnston Chapel Church at that time. In 1999, we hired Jim as our pastor of care and outreach, and he is still serving faithfully in that capacity 24 years later. So I bring greetings from from them. If you remember Jim and Jennifer, you probably also remember Jennifer's mother, Audrey Engel. Audrey was a faithful member here, and if I have my facts correct, she taught a women's Bible class for a period of time here at at the Bible Center, and uh, Audrey went to be with the Lord about a year and a half ago. Her husband, Ken, you may also remember, Ken uh, did not know Christ, uh, was very antagonistic to the gospel. In fact, if you would try to witness to Ken, he would let you know very quickly, I don't want to hear any of that. Otherwise, he was very kind and gracious, but you start talking about the Lord, he made it very clear. He didn't want to hear about it. Well, Ken is now living at the um, health care center there in Princeton and uh, um, Stone Rise Health Care Center. And uh, about three weeks ago, when Jennifer went in to see him, uh, he said, I have something to tell you. I want you to know I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. Yes. Two weeks before his 98th birthday. Uh, In all those years that Jim and Jennifer and Audrey had faithfully lived out their testimony before him and had witnessed to him, he had rejected it, but God was working in his heart all of that time, and it finally came to fruition. Jeannie and I went to see him about a week after he had made that confession of faith, and uh, I was not going to ask him about it. I'd talked to him several times about the Lord in recent weeks before that, but I was not going to ask him about it. I wanted him to tell me on his own, and it wasn't, we weren't there a minute. And he said, I hope you have heard that I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. His face was radiant. His whole countenance was different. His heart had been transformed. His life had been transformed. Even though he's no longer able to get out, you could see in his countenance, you could hear it in his voice, his, his saying to us that, I wish I'd done this years earlier, and now I know I'm going to get to see Audrey again. It just was amazing to see the transformation in his spirit, attitude, countenance, his life, his heart. Everything was different. Well, you're in a series here at Bible Center on the transformed life, and you've been talking, as you have heard and, and seen on the screen, about how God transforms our hearts through his amazing grace And he continues to transform us to be more like him as we grow in him. Your pastors have been using Old Testament examples to highlight that transformed life and transformed heart. Now, in June, the focus was on how God does transform our hearts, how he works to draw us to himself, and then as we grow more in sync with his own heart. July, uh, as I understand it, signals a bit of a shift in this series to a transformed people. 
And what we're going to focus on the next couple of weeks and then on through the end of the month with the other pastors here at the church is uh, focusing on what God does through transformed lives, whose hearts, people whose hearts have been transformed by the grace of God, he then prepares them to become transformation agents in the lives of others. So we're going to use more Old Testament examples to see that take place. And I think it's very important for us to recognize that we are not to see these Old Testament people as better than us or somehow on a different spiritual plane than we are because they have something that we don't have. It's important that we don't see them that way. It is God who transformed their hearts. It is God who prepares them to then be transformational agents in the lives of other people. And God wants to do the same thing with us. It's not that we should be trying to be more like those men or women in the Old Testament. It's important that we see that God wants to do the same work in our hearts and in our lives. And so what we're looking for, what we're aiming at in these messages is that we will yield ourselves fully to the God who transforms people, who transforms us to then be agents of transformation in other people's lives. Today, I've been asked to um, guide us in a look at Elijah kind of uh, comical to me or ironic because I think it was back in 2009 when I filled in here for a few months that I actually did a whole series on Elijah. But we're going to look at one incident in his life today in 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18 with me today. Elijah, it is important to recognize, came to his ministry as a prophet in the midst of a very dark time in Israel's history. King Ahab was on the throne. King Ahab would be one of the most wicked kings in the northern kingdom of Israel. He married Queen Jezebel, whose name is synonymous with evil and wickedness. She brought with her from her homeland, Phoenicia, the king of Sidon was her father. She brought with her her pagan religious system, the Baal and Asherah worship. Baal and Asherah were male and female deities who were the gods of fertility. They were supposed to bring rains that made the land fertile and brought forth crops. And in the worship of Baal and also of Asherah, there were these lurid, immoral worship rites that included male and female prostitutes. And so you can see how low things had gotten in Israel when Elijah bursts on the scene. Elijah demonstrates to us that God wants to transform our lives to be a transformation agent in the lives of others. God has been showing to Israel that he really is the true God, not Baal, not Asherah. He is the true God through a three-and-a-half-year famine that was announced through the prophet Elijah. But then God uses that three-and-a-half years to prepare Elijah to be an agent of transformation in the nation. By the time we get to 1 Kings 18, Elijah has set up this contest with the prophets of Baal to show who really is the true God. And what we find about how God has shaped and molded Elijah and how he wants to transform our lives so that we can be used in other people's lives, what we see is, first of all, Elijah was a person of compassion. God wants to transform us to be, first of all, people of 
conviction. God wants to transform us to be people of conviction. Now, when I use the word conviction, what I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about a truth that you hold so strongly, it is so dear to you that it changes your life. It forms in your life the way you look at life. It actually molds your whole worldview. That's a conviction. We're not talking about a preference or something like that. We're not talking about something that you think is okay. We're talking about something that is so dear to you, you would give your life for that truth. That's a conviction. And Elijah shows us how God wants to mold us to be people of conviction. First of all, we see in this text, in 1 Kings chapter 18, that he was a man of conviction about sin. His conviction about sin is seen in his confrontation with King Ahab in verses 17 and 18. Now, God had told him in verse 1 of this chapter to go present himself to Ahab. The meeting had been set up in verses 15 and 16. So we come to verse 17, and we see his confrontation with Ahab, which demonstrates that he has conviction about sin. Look at verse 17. When he, Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Elijah appears before Ahab, and Ahab immediately confronts Elijah with these words, Is that you, O troubler of Israel? The word troubler is a word that's sometimes translated in the Old Testament, viper or snake. So in reality, he's saying to Elijah, is that you, you low-down snake? And Elijah doesn't back off at all. Elijah's not intimidated by the fact that he's the king and that he's challenged him with such stark words. Elijah doesn't budge one bit. Elijah says, I'm not the snake here, Ahab. I'm not the one who's troubled Israel. You have. And you have troubled Israel, and he puts his finger right on the sin that he brought into Israel. You've troubled Israel because you've brought the Baals, the false gods, to worship into this land. So Elijah doesn't back down a bit. He proclaims and exposes the sin that was true in Ahab's life. We need to understand that sin must be exposed for God to work. There is a form of so-called gospel preaching today in our land that doesn't want to mention sin because, oh, that might offend somebody. And we don't want to offend anybody. And so we don't want to say much about sin. We just want people to know God loves them, and he does. And we just want them to know that God is a God of grace, and he is. But sometimes we forget that the whole reason God, in his love, sent his son Jesus was to pay the penalty for our sin, to die because we are all sinners, to die to bear God's wrath and judgment for our sin. And unless we first understand that we are sinners, we will never appreciate the love of God or the grace of God. Sin must be exposed from the pulpit in preaching today, but even more important than that, sin must be exposed in our personal lives. 
through personal examination. Because if sin is not dealt with, if sin is not exposed, how can we expect God to transform our hearts to be more like His? And how can we expect God to transform us to be people He can use in the hearts and lives of others unless we are dealing with our own sin? There's a verse in Proverbs chapter 28 that says this very thing. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Friend, if you are not dealing with sin in your life, in your heart, then you cannot prosper spiritually. It is only as through self-examination with the light of the Scriptures as our guide, as we examine our hearts and deal with sin, that God will then bless us and prosper us and use us to be transformation agents in the lives of others. So we must be people of conviction, conviction about sin. Secondly, we see that Elijah also was a man of conviction about God. This is seen in the challenge to the people in verses 19 through 21. Look at verse 19. Still speaking to Ahab, he says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel. And bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Now, Elijah issues this challenge to the people. If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal's God, follow him. The if does not indicate any uh, questioning on Elijah's part about who's the true God. He knows who the true God is. He's the prophet of Yahweh, the true God, Jehovah, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. He's the prophet of that true God. So what he's saying is if, that's, if he is the true God, and he is, then serve him wholeheartedly. Don't waver. Don't go back and forth. Don't be uh, uh, double-minded. Serve him wholeheartedly. You see the word waver there. The word waver is actually a word which is sometimes used in the Old Testament to dance or hop on one leg and then dance or hop on the other leg. Don't worry, I promise I'm not going to try to illustrate it for you. But it means to go back and forth from one side to the other. Now, the word uh, opinions is an interesting word also. It's a word used sometimes in the Old Testament of a fork in a road or a fork in the limb of a tree. So you can go one of two directions when you come to a fork, right? And what he's saying here is you are faced with the option of either worshiping Baal or worshiping God, Yahweh. Who are you going to worship? Stop trying to go back and forth between the two. Stop trying to hop over here to Baal for a little while, please him, then hop back over here to Yahweh for a while and try to please him. Be wholehearted. That's the challenge to the people. It's a challenge about who God really is. 
Some of you baseball fans will remember the name Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra was an all-star catcher for the Yankees for most of his career. He played 19 years in the major leagues, 18 of those with the New York Yankees. Of those 19 years, he was an all-star, 18 of those years. During his time with the Yankees, they won 10 World Series, 10 World Series in those 18 years. He's considered one of the top two or three catchers of all time, but he's, he's just as known for the way he used to say things. Yogi Berra would say things with such convoluted language that it would leave people scratching their heads and say, what did he just say? You can still look them up. They're called yogi-isms. You can look them up on, uh, on uh, Google. You can search the internet for them later. You can do that. And uh, you'll find sometimes there are lists of like 50 yogi-isms. Let me just give you a sampling, a brief sample. He said this. He said, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. What? He would often say this, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. He went into a a pizza place one time when the team was on the road, and he ordered a whole pizza for himself. He's going to eat the whole pizza. But he told the server, said, you better cut that pizza into four pieces. I don't think I'm hungry enough to eat six pieces. But probably Yogi Berra's most famous statement, I find it in the top two or three of any list you find of yogiisms is this. He would often say, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. That's exactly what Israel was trying to do. They'd come to a fork in the road, and they're trying to take it. Can't decide. Do I want to serve Baal? Do I want to please him? Do I want to, do I want to, I don't want to leave out Yahweh. Do I? So let's go back and forth. We'll do both. And what God is saying through Elijah is you've got to be a person of conviction about God. Now you say, well, what does that have to do with me? Uh, I'm not troubled by Baal worship or Asherah worship or anything like that. So what does that have to do with me? I believe there are lots of folks who claim to be Christians who are jumping back and forth between two options in their lives. On Sunday, they come to church. Maybe you're one of these folks. You come to church. You sing the songs, you listen to the message, you may even be involved in some ministry at the church, but on Monday, no one would ever be able to tell you from anyone else in the world because you really live your life for the gods of this world, materialism, position, popularity, stature, recognition, all of those things. That's your God through the week, Monday through Saturday, but on Sunday... God is your God. So aren't we doing the same thing when we don't live wholeheartedly for Jesus Christ with every fiber of our being, loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as ourselves? Aren't we doing the same thing as what the people in Elijah's day were doing? I would suggest we are. And so we need, once again, that very familiar admonition of Paul from Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. It's such a familiar verse I think we lose the impact of it sometimes. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul says, I beseech you or I beg you, I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your... Now catch this this language. You present your bodies a living sacrifice, 
holy, which means set apart completely to God, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. What he's saying is that if we really understand the mercies of God, and when he says, I beseech you, therefore, he's summing up everything that he's talked about in the first 11 chapters of Romans in that verse. In that one word, therefore, all the mercies of God in our salvation, our sanctification, our security, all of those great doctrines that he's expounded in the first 11 chapters, now that we've seen that, now that we've got a handle on that, we need to understand what God is requiring of us. If he really is the God who saves us, who sets us apart to himself, who secures our salvation so that we never lose our salvation, if he really is the God who does that, then it is absolutely reasonable, it is logical that we give ourselves completely to him. Not that we divide up the sacrifice into two parts for the week. Part of it goes to God, part of it goes to the world or our own pleasures, our own self. No, no. He deserves it all. He deserves it all. And so a conviction about God, if he is truly God, he deserves everything from us. And then thirdly, we see that Elijah was a person of conviction about truth. He had a conviction about sin. He had a conviction about God. He also had a conviction about truth. And this is seen in the contest with the prophets, beginning in verse 22. We're going to read a little bit of this, and I'll comment as we go along as to some of the significance of these concepts here. Verse 22, Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Now, I want you to see in these first three verses here that Elijah is trying to draw, he's going to, to great lengths to draw a distinction between him and the prophets of Baal. Did you catch that? He, it's like the, the crowd is watching. Here are the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah's over here and he says, okay, I'm the only prophet of God left. I want you to know that. I'm over here in this side, 450 prophets of Baal over there. He's saying, we're not on the same team here. There are two different groups here. He's making a distinction. And then he says, okay, you prophets of Baal, you choose a bull, and I'll choose a bull. He told the people, bring two bulls, not one. It's not one bull, we're going to split it, we'll each use half, you know, so we can kind of conserve and that kind of thing, and, and, all, and we won't, you know, upset PETA and all those kinds of things. No, he's saying, two bulls, one for me, one for you guys, because we're not doing the same thing here. And then he says, you prepare your sacrifice to the prophets of Baal, and you call on your God, and then I will call on, he doesn't say my God, he says, I will call on the Lord, all capital letters, Jehovah, or Yahweh, his personal name in the Old Testament. That's the God I will call upon, the true God. So he's making a clear distinction here between himself and the other prophets. That's important to see. But this continues on as the contest is further defined and carried out. Look at verse 
25. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God and do not light the fire. Let me stop for just a moment. This is the third time he said something about not lighting any fire under the sacrifice. What's that about? It was very customary in the ancient world for pagan religions to try to fool the people with a little bit of hanky-panky behind the scenes when they offered their sacrifices. The idea was this, they prepared the sacrifice, but underneath the altar they had put some live coals, hot coals, and there was a chamber that channeled air into there, and they would somehow funnel air through that with bellows or something like that, and those coals would burst into flame, and the kindling would take fire, and the sacrifice would be consumed, and it looked like a miracle. Where did that fire come from? Wow, what a miracle. And that was what they did oftentimes. So Elijah's saying, no tricky business here, no funny business here. You don't put any coals under there. You don't do anything to make it look like you're going to be successful. He mentions that, and he says, I'll do the same. I'm not going to put any fire under it either. Verse 26, so they took the bull given them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Think of that. I don't know how early in the morning they started, maybe 9 o'clock, maybe earlier. Till noon, three hours at least. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. That was common in Baal worship. The the priests would leap around the altar. And, And so that's what they're doing, dancing around the altar. Now look at verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Okay, so they've been at this at least three hours. And so Elijah starts to mock them. Wow. Notice what he says. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a God. So the idea is, why isn't he listening? Why isn't he responding? So just shout a little louder. And Elijah suggests some reasons why they may need to shout a little louder. Perhaps he's deep in thought. You know, he's just kind of off to himself and he's thinking about something. He hadn't heard you yet, so just shout a little louder. Or perhaps he is... Busy. Oh, that's an interesting word. It's actually the Hebrew word which means to relieve yourself. So what Elijah is literally saying in this mocking is he's always in the celestial men's room. He'll be out in a moment. Just just keep on hollering. He'll be he'll be out in a moment. And then he says, maybe he is traveling. So he's on a trip. He'll be back shortly. Just go ahead and holler a little bit louder. Or maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened, so cry a little louder. He's taunting them, mocking them, and it has the desired effect. Verse 28, so they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom. And it was customary for the prophets of Baal to cut themselves and mix their blood with the blood of the sacrificial animal. Somehow they thought that mixing those two, their blood with it, would make Baal stand up and notice, wow, these guys are really serious. You know, we better, we better get on the ball here and answer. So they tried that. But look, midday passed, verse 29. They continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice, which is 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But notice this very sobering end of verse 29. But there was no response, no one answered, 
no one paid attention. Wow. You can just almost feel the dead silence in those words. Now, why does Elijah do that? Why does he allow them to go on for hours and hours, six or more hours? Why does he taunt them? Why does he mock them? Again, I think the answer is very simple. Elijah is drawing a clear distinction between what they're going to do and what he's going to do. Because when he fixes his sacrifice, we're not going to read the rest of it, but when he fixes his sacrifice, he fixes it, he places it on the altar, then he prays a prayer that even praying slowly and deliberately takes about 20 seconds to pray. And at the end of that prayer, the fire of God falls from heaven And God shows dramatically that he is the true God. So you can see the stark difference. And I think that's the reason Elijah let this go on so long. We're going to give them every chance to prove to the people beyond any reasonable chance to succeed. And I'm going to goad them on, you know, so that they'll really go at it with all of their might. The reason is I want to show a clear distinction, a sharp distinction between what is true and what is false. Elijah is making the point with all of this, there is a true religion, there is a false religion. There, are true, there is a true prophet, there are false prophets. There is a true God, and there is a false God. Now that's a conviction about truth. What Elijah is saying, there is truth. And it is revealed to us, and we can be certain of truth. Boy, do we ever need that in our culture today. A conviction about truth. We live in a day of pluralism, where supposedly every view has equal validity. So you just pick whatever one you want, and you're just as right. You're just as good as the guy who chooses some other view. We live in a day of relativism, which is the philosophy that says, basically, there are no absolutes. Everything is relative. There's no absolute truth. There's no absolute right or wrong. There's no absolute morality. That's the day in which we live. In order to be used of God to impact our culture today, folks, we need to be people of conviction about truth. There is truth. There are absolutes. They are revealed to us by the one true God in his true word. And we need to hold to that today. One of my favorite presidents is Abraham Lincoln. I love Lincoln. I love reading about his life. One of the things I love about him the most was that uh, kind of backwoods frontier kind of wit and wisdom that he had. One day, some people came to him, some legislators, trying to push him to support a bill that they were going to introduce into Congress. And he could tell by the way they explained it, they had faulty logic and reasoning in coming up with this bill. And so he listened to them, and then finally he said this. He said, "Uh, I, I want to ask you this question. How many legs would a sheep have if you call its tail a leg? And they quickly answered, five. And he said, no, no. Calling a tail a leg does not make it a leg. They've only got, sheep's only got four legs. We could use some of that wisdom today, couldn't we? Calling a man a woman does not make him a woman. 
calling a same-sex union a marriage does not make it a marriage. Calling abortion reproductive health does not make it have anything to do with health. Now, I'm not an issue-oriented preacher, but I want to use that to illustrate the fact that we've got a real crisis in our nation today, the nation that we're called to minister to, the communities, the cities like Charleston, we are committed to, to minister to. We've got a real crisis. And it's not a crisis of which position you take on those issues. That's not the real crisis. You know what the real problem is? The real question is, what is your authority? The question of authority is the chief issue that we face today because the culture believes every view is equally valid, pluralism. You get to pick whatever you want because there's no absolute truth or morality, relativism. So who becomes the, who becomes the authority? Me. I'm my own authority. And nobody can tell me that I'm wrong about anything or that I've done something or said something or, or living a lifestyle that is not appropriate. Nobody can say that because it's right for me. That's the crisis in our nation today, is the crisis of authority. And if we are going to impact this nation at all, if we're going to impact our communities at all, we have to be clear on what sin is. We have to be clear on who God is. And we have to be clear on what truth is, that there are absolutes in God's Word. We have to be clear on that. But you know what? We also have to be, that sounds awful strong, John, I know what you're thinking, but we also have to be people of compassion. Because God wants to transform us, not only to be people of conviction, but people of compassion. Jesus calls us to compassion. Now, we might be thinking, okay, we're going to be like Elijah. If you read the rest of Elijah's story, there's one time when he calls down fire on some people who were sent to arrest him. does it twice. And so we're thinking, wow, that's what we need to do. We need to be really out there condemning sinners and letting them know God's going to judge them and making it sure, making it loud, making it clear that that's what we're here for. Well, there were two of Christ's disciples that also felt the same way. In Luke chapter 9, two of Christ's disciples, Luke Luke 9, verses 51 to 56. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. See, Samaritans did not have any uh, likeness, fondness at all for Jews, Jews likewise for Samaritans. So he's going to Jerusalem. We're not going to let him stay here at night. So notice what happens. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? Now, it's important to Remember, they just come down from the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was seen in all of his glory. James and John were two of the three disciples up there. Do you remember who else was on the mountain with them? Who appeared? Moses and Elijah. So they'd just seen Elijah. They come down from the mountain. They're all hyped up, ready to be the modern-day Elijah. And so they say, these people aren't going to accept you. You want us to call down fire from heaven like Elijah did? And the Bible says Jesus rebuked them. 
King James and the New American Standard add this from some other ancient manuscripts. You know not what manner of spirit you are of. The Son of Man has not come to destroy, but to save. So what's the difference between Elijah and us? Friend, the Bible explains the difference between Elijah and us. Some people say, well, you know, the thing about Elijah, he was in the Old Testament. That's where God was a God of wrath and judgment. And in the New Testament, Jesus shows us that God is a God of love and grace. That's an unbiblical dichotomy. There's plenty of love and grace in the Old Testament. There's plenty of wrath and judgment in the New Testament. That's not the issue. God hasn't changed. He's still the same. Here's the difference. Elijah was a God-ordained prophet calling the nation of Israel back to the covenant God had made with them, the Mosaic Covenant, which included blessings if they were obedient and curses or judgment on them if they were not obedient. Clear they had not been obedient. Elijah's A prophetic role is to call them back to obedience, and if they're not going to do that, to demonstrate, to show that God will judge them. So it's right for him to call down fire from heaven. That's the type of ministry God's called him to. We, however, are not messengers of the Mosaic Covenant. We're not in the nation of Israel. The Bible says, Hebrews, 2 Corinthians 3, says that we are ministers of a new covenant, And the new covenant is the message that Christ came to die on the cross for our sins to take the punishment and wrath of God that was reserved for us. Jesus took the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the judgment of God. So there is judgment in the New Testament for sin. It's already been taken by Christ on your behalf and on my behalf. And so we are to offer that message God's judgment has been satisfied. His wrath has been appeased. Now we offer his grace to you. He loves you enough to send his son to die for you. Now he wants you to be saved. That's the message. That's the difference between Elijah and us. Different covenants, different kinds of ministry. It's not that God has changed. He's changed the way he's working because we live after the death of Christ. So compassion affects the way we view others and approach others, even those far from God. Compassion affects the way we look at them, the way we approach them. We are to love the lost as Christ loved us. We are to offer them the gospel of grace. Listen, it is not our place to condemn sinners. That's clear that God's already done that, but Jesus has borne that for us. And those who turn away from Christ, God will take care of in the future. It's not our place to condemn sinners, to shout angry insults at them, to point our fingers, to wave our signs in front of them. That's not our place. Our place is to let them know that Christ has made provision for all of us sinners, regardless of what kind of sin we have committed. So here's the point of this message. Don't you sometimes wish a preacher would just go ahead and state the point rather than taking 35 minutes to lead up to it? Here's the whole point of the message. It's this. The key to seeing God's transforming power in the lives of people far from God is to balance conviction and compassion. If all you have is conviction, and that's good, conviction is needed, if that's all you've got, you'll be one of those with the angry signs and the 
loud shouts and the pointed fingers and the condemning attitude. If, however, you balance that with compassion, you will let sinners know you love them. You want them to hear the life-saving message of the grace of God. We have all, like sheep, wandered far away. Some in different ways maybe than you have, but we've all been there. And we need to show them the grace of God. We need to hold to the convictions Elijah had, but with love and mercy and grace, the kind Christ had for sinners. So welcome lost people with compassion. No matter what they're doing, no matter what kind of lifestyle they're living, no matter what sin they may have committed, we've all committed sin, right? We were all sinners. We needed Christ. So receive them with compassion, with love, But when the conversation turns to spiritual things, don't back down from convictions about what sin is, who God is, and what truth is. And with love and compassion, show them the Savior. That's what happened to Ken Engel. For all of those years, bless her heart, Miss Audrey, so compassionate, loving toward Ken. Same way with Jennifer and James. And God finally used that compassion to break through to Ken's heart. A hardened, atheist, evolutionist, didn't want to hear about God. God broke through his heart, and he realized his need for Christ. That's how we need to approach our culture today. Pray with me, please. Father, help us to be people of conviction. Help us to be people of compassion and to understand that you will work through us if we maintain that balance to impact our culture. No matter how dark it gets, we can still help us not to retreat from our culture. Help us to impact it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com and give us a follow on all platforms at Bible Center. 